Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Caleb Frankert, how are you today, man? Good, Jason. How the heck are you? I'm doing really well. I'm having a great day, and it's getting even better right now as I sit face-to-face with you about to talk about cocktails and high finance. Yes. High, high finance. Mutual funds. Uh, yeah. We're going to be a little more in-depth today. Uh, we're talking about a investment topic. This is part of the Manhattan Project. We're coming at you talking about mutual funds today. Yeah. Mutual funds are not rocket science. Right, Jason? They're not. And I'm sure all of our listeners have heard a lot about mutual funds. They're really common. So, yeah. so uh, People have heard of them like they've heard of bonds or stonks. Stonks. <laughs> yes. Mutual funds yes. are a very popular investment tool. That's why we wanted to talk about them. Everyone's heard them. The Pope of personal finance, Papa Bear, personal finance man, David Ramsey, has spoken at length about mutual funds and, and given very explicit recommendations on what to do. Today, we're going to talk about what the heck is a mutual fund? Well, first, a couple of things. Is it that he's spoken at length or length? M- maybe both. Okay, because when you watch sports, you hear length a lot and strength. And I'm just wondering if I've been saying it wrong for my whole life. Caleb, so we have established that we're talking about mutual funds. But before we dive into the investment topic, the whole premise of this podcast and the reason that we talk about cocktails and high finance is so that we loosen up a little, so that we let down our guard and we don't feel bad asking questions like, hey, what's a mutual fund? You don't feel dumb asking that question after you've had a Manhattan or three. You don't feel dumb after that at all, <laughs> really. So, And you shouldn't feel dumb with no Manhattans, by the way. It's a very legitimate question. It's probably one of the most Googled questions. You know how the, you know how it goes. People ask questions on the Google that they wouldn't normally ask their friends. Like what is, and then a mutual fund automatically fills in for you. Yeah. Yeah. Or this growth on my arm. Oh yeah. That too. Gross. Haven't we all had that? Yeah, sure. So Caleb, my question was, (laughs) what is a mutual fund? No, before we get into what is a mutual fund. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What today is the cocktail that we're going to be enjoying. Well, this is the Manhattan Project, the third in a series of our Investing is Not Rocket Science series. So we have to do some form of a a Manhattan or a variation. Today, we're doing a very, very close relative to the Manhattan. We're going to talk about the Brooklyn. That's one of the boroughs. Yeah, one of the boroughs. It sounded like you said bros. Sorry, but I got you now. Boroughs. Yep. Yeah, it's one of the bros of the boroughs. <laughs> it's both. That's it's, what we it's call. It's a bro to the Manhattan. That's what we call also... the Bronx and the Manhattan <laughs> and the Brooklyn and the other boroughs. What uh, are those? Queens. Uh, what are they? We are five not, boroughs, right? We are not from New York. Well, there's the Five Points Gang from Gangs of New York. Oh, I loved it. Daniel Day Lewis is such a great actor. He is a treasure. Is it Leonardo DiCaprio's in it? He hasn't made a bad movie in. 25 years. What do you think his last bad movie was? The Beach. Was that bad? I guess it wasn't bad. That's great. I have an awesome anecdote about that. My mom swears 
that she <laughs> met Leonardo DiCaprio while he was filming the beach. We, we, my family has spent lots of summers on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is really popular now because of that show, Outer Banks. So before it got really popular, her family had been going down there for like a week or two in the summer. And, and then me growing up through you know the, the 80s and the 90s, we spent a lot of time at uh, the Outer Banks. And on one of the fishing piers there, she swears that there was a creepy dude asking my cousin, so her nephew, a ton of questions while he was fishing. And she's like, this guy is creeping me out. I'm going to go protect my nephew. And she's like, he's really done up real nice. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to be rude to him. So I don't remember what she did. Mom's probably listening. But all she said afterwards was he smelled really good. (laughs) And then she found out that Leonardo DiCaprio was shooting for the beach. I think that Titanic hit everyone's homes. And uh, she's like, yeah, I told Leo off. Wow. You know what, though? Your mom, I love her. She's great. She's one of the few people that I think could tell him off. <laughs> he probably deserved it because my cousin just wanted to fish. Yeah, she, he was probably like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a fun anecdote. I we like don't that. know what the five boroughs are of New York, <laughs> we and we successfully distracted our listeners from that. All I know about New York is what I've learned from Seinfeld, so <laughs> that's about it. Let's get into the Brooklyn a little bit, Jason. Enough shenanigans, I guess. Do we want to get into what we're drinking first, or do you want to do a little history? Yeah, let's explain it. Okay. So, Jason, I have a little bit of information. I'm sure that you've done some research, too. We alluded to the five boroughs and the fact that this is a direct relative to the Manhattan. I pulled something off of the interwebs from whiskeyadvocate.com, actually. There is an article in here where they interviewed an author named Eric Felton. That's really close to James. Yes, Eric Felton. He's a James Beard award-winning author of How's Your Drink? Cocktails, Culture, and the Art of Drinking Well. Sounds like a book we might want to check out. But he says most drinks are created before they are named, but not the Brooklyn cocktail. So here's the thing. The Manhattan had become so popular and had actually done good things for the borough of Manhattan. So the Bronx was another drink that followed and had done really well in the early 1900s as well. No surprise, Brooklyn wanted a drink of their own. The problem was there was a string of really terrible drinks that were proposed to be named the Brooklyn, okay? Some of these included a rum-based drink. There was one at the Gage Long and- Island. Sorry, when you said really bad drink ideas, that might not be one of the boroughs. Sorry. So just imagine a drink with the ingredients of the Long Island iced tea. Well, that's all of the ingredients. It's basically a garbage can, right? <laughs> and maybe that was proposed as the Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't know. Moving on. There was uh, a, a gin take on the Manhattan as well at a hotel, Hotel Bossert. And then a mix of rye, dry vermouth, and a dash of maraschino liqueur and amara pecan, which is uh, bitter liqueur, uh, at the Hotel St. George. He said uh, in in the mid-1930s, there were about as many drinks called the Brooklyn as there were bars in Brooklyn. So everybody was staking claim to the Brooklyn drink. In 1934, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper tried to sort out the confusion with a contest. So the winner, among hundreds of entries, was a drink of gin grapefruit juice, and grenadine. Ew. <laughs> I like gin, grenadine, okay. Grapefruit, grapefruit juice? Grapefruit juice. No, thank you. That's not, that's not attractive. So uh, Felton says, uh, noting that concoction, it was quickly forgotten. It was a <laughs> flop. It didn't work. The drink that survived is the one that was made at St. George and is kind of what we're drinking now with a, a couple of, of, of little minor tweaks here. Oh, we'll get into that. So that drink, actually, the one we're, we're enjoying here today, actually dates back to 1908 when it was published in J.A., also known as Jack Grohusko's Jack's Manual, 
on the vintage and production, care and handling of wines, liquors, etc. Heck of a book title. That is a long title. Quite long. So you got you got Jack Grohusko being credited with this. I have that as well. I did a little research. I, of course, consulted cocktail historian David Wondrich. He wrote about it in his book, Imbibe. He also has written about it in many internet articles all over the place. But basically, he credits this drink... mostly the internet? uh, Mostly (laughs) the internet. (laughs) He credits the drink to Jack Grohusko, too, who came to New York as an infant uh, immigrant and worked in hotel bars all around there in New York. Uh, Baraka's Bar was a popular bar that he was in charge of. And in 1908, he published Jack's Manual. There'd be four more of that manual from 1910 to 1933. Take note. Yes, take note. There are many versions of it, which factors into this. Uh, in 1910, that guy, Grohusko, he opened his own place on Stone Street. We don't know if his Brooklyn cocktail was actually his. Just like every cocktail that we talk about, it probably was stolen a billion times. Uh, a, a inclusion of a version of this Brooklyn cocktail did end up in the Savoy cocktail book, but we know Harry Craddock stole all sorts of recipes. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know. And, and Wondrich doesn't know. And if anybody would know, he would know. True. So he doesn't credit this drink specifically to Grujusko, but he knows he's the first one that actually printed it. And an interesting thing about his recipe is that he, it, was this, it was the same deal that you said. He was trying to make a drink for, the, for Brooklyn as popular as the Manhattan was. And he basically copied the Manhattan and then added some other stuff. He put maraschino liqueur in there. Mm-hmm. He added that Amer Pecan Bitters liqueur yeah. that you talked about too and and uh, mix this drink up but the difference is wondrich says that his version of this cocktail included sweet vermouth or italian vermouth instead of dry vermouth and would, all the recipes we have now are dry vermouth well and the manhattan is sweet vermouth yes and and that's uh when we get to the recipe that we use here for today's episode we notice the substitution for dry vermouth for sweet vermouth and come to find out doing some research, it might have just been somebody overlooking uh, some things when they, they put together a recipe book. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, uh, Grujusko, I think, put Balor or Balum, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, vermouth as the type. And Wondrich was guessing that he just might not know what kind of vermouth that was. So he's just <laughs> like, well, I've got dry vermouth, so I'll use that. And it can't be exactly the same as a Manhattan plus some maraschino liqueur and a mare sure. pecan bitters. Yeah. But I think that's probably what it actually was, because uh, Wondrich was like, that Balom or Balor was a sweet vermouth. It was Italian. Building on top of that, that Whiskey Advocate article that I, I read said that the original recipe, as far as they could tell, was rye whiskey, sweet vermouth, maraschino liqueur, and bitter orange liqueur. Yeah, it, it could have just been someone putting together a recipe book and didn't know exactly what the heck they were referencing to with one of the vermouths being used. And they threw dry vermouth in there, which changes the drink entirely. Absolutely. It becomes a real hybrid of a martini and a Manhattan then. Yeah, which is right up my alley. If you know me and you've listened to the show, you know that I love martinis mm-hmm. and I love Manhattans. Those are the two drink, uh, drinks that I'll test a bartender with when we go into a new establishment. You know, we want to find out if the bartenders, if they're competent, um, <laughs> we'll order a martini or a Manhattan or both, if you really want to know. So yeah, like you said, most of the modern recipes call for dried vermouth, likely due to that substituting, uh, you know, of just, just swapping things out by accident. Some say, and, and according to this Whiskey Advocate article, it, it makes sense because of the substituting that sweeter orange liqueur in place of the pecan or the orange bitter the dry vermouth plays with the you know the new sweeter orange liqueurs and oh, they, okay. they balance each other a little bit oh, better. that would so. make more sense 
But who knows? There's lots of controversy like there are oh, with course. Of these that's part cocktails. of the that's half of the fun with having cocktails is arguing about the right way to make them. It definitely is. So today we're actually drinking a couple of variations, but the one that we started with is you know, what we accept as today's version of the Brooklyn, which is yeah, probably what you'll get if you order it at a bar. You got it. It's two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce of a dry vermouth, a quarter of an ounce of maraschino liqueur, and a quarter of an ounce of American pecan, or uh, that's pretty hard to get these days uh, if I you're not you're in France. I think you're going to only get, yeah, only, only the French get it. <laughs> uh, there's also something um, that I, I can't pronounce here that's found in China. We're not, we're not getting that anytime soon either. So all of the recipes that I found really say that a couple of dashes of Angostura bitters, maybe some orange bitters uh, mm-hmm. will do the trick too. And then you're going to garnish that with a Luxardo maraschino cherry, like you would a regular Manhattan. Basically, just add all those ingredients into a mixing glass with ice, stir until well chilled, strain into a coupe glass, and enjoy. And we had one of those just a few minutes ago. Yeah. And then we tried it David Wondrich's way. Yeah, which arguably could be the original old school way. Yeah. Caleb, tell me about the one with the driver vermouth, the the modern day version how how do you like it how does it taste to you well i like it i really do think like we said before it, it mixes the idea of a martini that dry uh i think it's a really good before dinner drink actually yeah uh, those dry drinks kind of get the appetite going um, an aperitif yes a, aperitif aperitif however you say aperitif um, is it italian or french do we know gosh i don't know yeah. sounds french it's a fancy word for before sounds dinner french. drink yeah i i liked it I, I really did like it a lot. We had to, because David Wondrich has opinions on this, mm-hmm. we had to use his recipe, and my goodness, we used Kochi uh, Sweet Vermouth. Which is exactly what he recommended using. We're out of Carpano Antico, which is what we normally would have used. He but. said that had too much vanilla Yeah, to I, go with the uh, maraschino liqueur, and he, I guess I just got to trust him. I don't know. His palate is way more refined than ours. I like this a lot. Here's the funny thing. We had the... I say traditional, but it might not be the original, the dry vermouth version of a Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Then we snacked on some cheese and crackers and stuff like that. And now we're enjoying David Wondrich's version, which might be the original version, which is a little more desserty. <laughs> Very much more a digestif. I like them both a lot, man. I, you know me, man. I'm a sweet tooth, and I <laughs> gravitate heavily toward Wondrich's version of this. I have to imagine this was a Manhattan originally with the sweet vermouth and the rye, and I we love Manhattans. I love a good Manhattan, and those are the two main uh, flavors that pop out of there. But adding the maraschino liqueur and the bitters to this really gives it an interesting complexity that I like a lot. I might like it more than Manhattan, except for that it's almost too desserty. Yeah, I like I said, I think it's a nice finish after we've had that aperitif <laughs> and then we've had our uh, our main our course crackers. <laughs> <laughs> it's not overly sweet. It's not sickly sweet or cloying. It's dang good though. Oh, it's it's really really good. Uh, I like it a lot. That extra that just that little splash of maraschino liqueur adds a lot to it. And I will say this for listeners, we tried maraschino liqueur in a brandy cocktail. Actually, I think at the time we recorded the episode, we didn't have maraschino liqueur. We substituted that with a cherry liqueur. And I can tell you, we got our hands on a bottle of uh, Luxardo maraschino liqueur. I just thought it would taste similar to the Luxardo maraschino cherries. It's a completely different taste, completely. The cherry liqueurs out there are not 
what we're going for whenever when that's included in a drink recipe that's not what we're after here so some of the things that i read in here according to the whiskey advocate one thing you can't do is skip out on the maraschino liqueur Mm -hmm. and i agree totally in both variations of the drink that we had today absolutely i think that's that's worth the money uh the investment it'll last for a really long time it's it's a high uh abv Mm -hmm. high proof uh, but it definitely changed the drink a lot when we tried that improve, improved brandy cocktail with yeah. it versus with the cherry liqueur. Totally different Worlds drink. of difference. So, And it's a really cool, attractive bottle. It's nice sitting on your shelf. And I like everything Luxardo that I've had so far. <laughs> they seem to know what they're doing. There is no substitute for a Luxardo maraschino cherry. A $20 investment for your cocktails at home, well, well worth it. It's true. <laughs> if you're halfway serious, do it. All right, so we've talked probably way too much about the drink, Jason. Let's get into the meat and taters of this and talk about mutual funds. Yeah, mutual funds, Caleb. This is what everyone's dying to learn about. We usually explain it. Our our firm uses mutual funds in our investment portfolios, uh, and uh, we have for a long time. So just to get that out of the way, we're advocates of this type of investing strategy, and there's reasons why. But before we dive into that... Let's go with the very basics, Caleb. I want to I want to dive in with with our listeners here on on what is a mutual fund. And yeah, you can just Google it and you'll get some decent answers. But if I were to ask you, or if I didn't have very much investment experience, and I said, uh, "That's cool. I've heard about mutual funds. What is a mutual fund? How would you explain it?" I think the simplest explanation would be it's a. I use the term basket. It's a basket of stocks and bonds or. Uh, money market type instruments. It, it's a group of investments. It's it's a packaged investment product. SEC defines it as an investment company, which mm, I think right. sounds a little funny, but it does. Basically, it's a collection of individual stocks, which is ownership in companies, bonds, which is debt from companies, uh, and things of that nature. So, I guess that's as simple as it gets. It's a bunch of stuff. When I I explain it to folks, I'll use the actual term mutual in there to like just to just to put it in perspective what you said is absolutely correct that's that's a really simple way to explain it it makes sense a mutual fund is a mutually funded investment you and lots of other people are giving your money to this investment company that's going to invest your money for you and there there's all sorts of different kinds of mutual funds and we'll get into that but so whatever their goal is if it's growth or if they're a, a a mutual fund company that wants to invest in stocks they'll take your money and everyone else who's mutually funded the company and they'll invest in stocks for you that's a mutual fund simply let's say somebody wants to start investing jason the first thing they generally think about if they've not done a lot of research or looked into this is okay so i buy stocks right right say uh somebody in their 20s just got their first uh big boy or big girl job and they want to invest a little bit of money they're probably thinking in their heads what stocks should i buy yeah why are mutual funds such a great alternative to individual stock picking well if we're that person that just got their big boy or big girl job for the first time you don't have a whole bunch of money to put into your investments presumably and a lot of times people are investing in their employer-sponsored plan if it's a 401k or 403b or whatever. So let's imagine that we're doing that. So I've got a few hundred dollars a paycheck going into my retirement plan, and I'm going to buy some investments. If I want to buy some stock, I'm not going to be able to be very diversified with a few hundred dollars a week going into my investments. I'm going to buy very few shares, if any, 
of some stocks. Like Apple stock is expensive. Amazon stock is expensive uh, because their their price keeps going up even though they keep splitting. I couldn't come close to buying one Bitcoin. So uh, I've got I've got a problem. I'm not going to be able to buy that stock, and I'm definitely not going to be able to diversify. Yeah, and diversification is very important. That was the last uh, of the Manhattan Project episodes yeah. that we 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 talked about diversification, why that's important for your portfolio. It's almost impossible to be diversified when you're starting out, right? Yeah. If you've got a million dollars and you want to build an individual stock portfolio and you want to be diversified, you can probably do that. If you're, you know, the average Joe starting out, graduated from college, got your first big boy job with a 401k or big girl job with a 401k or a 403b or something like that, how are you diversified from the start? Well, you can buy a share or a couple of shares of a mutual fund and own, you know, maybe 200 or 300 different companies uh, inside of that fund by owning one share, right? So let's say you put $100 into that mutual fund. That $100 could be split up amongst two or 300 different companies, right? Yeah. So Let's talk a little bit, Jason, about the structure of a mutual fund. You talked about how it's funded mutually. <laughs> that sounds obvious, right? But but it's it's not. We hear the word mutual we hear the words mutual fund so much that it just kind of becomes like if you say the same word over and over and over repeatedly. Mutual, it, mutual, yeah. mutual, mutual, mutual. See, it's starting to lose its meaning, right? You can do that with yarn really easily. You can do that with anything. Yarn, yarn, yarn. So we hear this word or these words, mutual fund, and it starts to lose its meaning. But it it is quite simple. It's a lot of people putting money into a pool and they're buying hundreds of different companies uh, with smaller amounts of money. That's how they're diversified. Jason, some other advantages to a mutual fund. Diversification we talked about here just a yeah. little bit, but what what other advantages do mutual funds carry aside from that? Well, let's go with the average investor. Say you're not that person that just got their first big job and uh, is just starting out investing. It is very valuable to use a mutual fund to get diversification. You might not be able to. Well, what if you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars invested? Why then should you consider a mutual fund maybe? Well, the answer to that is you have access to professional management. Mm-hmm. A mutual fund usually has a fund manager or a whole team of people that are experts on picking investments. So you might not know which stocks to pick, and you can outsource that decision to a fund manager. And that fund manager usually has lots of letters behind their name and lots of experience, and you can check their track record and that sort of thing. But a mutual fund is a way to get relatively cheap access to professional fund management. And uh, that helps out the person that's got millions of dollars as well as the person that's only got a couple hundred dollars. Sure. So yeah, just because you have a million dollars and you could build a truly diversified stock portfolio doesn't mean that you've got the acumen or let's be honest, the time and the resources to go out and do that yourself and then monitor it. So I'd put it this way. Professional fund management is simply this. You're paying somebody to manage funds because that's what they do all day, every day. And that's what they're good at. Just like you go to work every day and you do what you're good at. You know, you might be an architect or you might be a teacher, you know, whatever it is, you do what you do really well. People pay you to do that. This is all these people do all day, every day. They manage investments. Yeah, I think there's value in that. And, and that's why uh, a mutual fund can be beneficial for folks. Uh, well, actually, before we jump into number two, I wanted to talk real quickly about some of the structure. And this is just more of a kind of a disclaimer. But if you are working with an advisor or you've been presented some kind of investment products, something you got to you got to kind of keep an eye out for. I'm, I don't want to say that these are necessarily bad or anything like that, but they do often get confused with traditional mutual funds. So when talking about the structure of a mutual fund, what they're buying actually is shares of the mutual fund itself. 
And what the mutual fund is doing is they're buying shares of these individual stock positions, bond positions, what have you. But what you're buying is a share of the company, the the mutual fund company, the investment company, we'll, we'll say. So when you need to take money out of that fund, you're redeeming a share in the fund. A mutual fund is set up as an open-ended investment company, which means that they stand able to redeem your shares at any point in time. This is really important from a liquidity standpoint. I have seen a lot of times where where closed-end funds are presented kind of as mutual funds. They're not necessarily one and the same. It's a different structure. Unfortunately, I've seen folks who have come in with a portfolio with a statement that has closed-end funds on that. And we talk about, okay, you know, maybe this doesn't make sense. How do, we, how do we get out of this? Well, with a mutual fund, we're really, we're wired to think, okay, I just sell shares in that. A closed-end fund doesn't necessarily work that way. So closed-end funds essentially are similar to a stock in that it has an initial public offering of shares of the company. And after that, that's it. That's all the shares that are out there. Okay. So if you want to sell your shares in that fund, there has to be a buyer. Because of that, a lot of these closed-end funds will hold some positions that are not necessarily as liquid as what you might find in your typical uh, mutual fund. So I just want to clarify, while closed-end funds aren't mutual funds, a lot of times they're presented as traditional mutual funds. But one of the benefits we didn't talk about with a mutual fund is liquidity. The fact that you can buy in and the fact that you can redeem shares at any point in time. With a closed-end fund, that might not necessarily be the case. And I've seen multiple clients who've had them who were shocked or surprised by the fact that they could not just liquidate funds on demand. Yeah. And, and because of that structure, those closed-end closed end funds a lot of times will hold more illiquid assets. Yeah, I think it's worth noting with a mutual fund, you're owning a share of the investment company, like you said, Caleb. But when you sell those shares, you're, you're not really selling them. You're redeeming them. The mutual fund company is giving you money back for the uh, shares that value that you had in the company. You're not actually selling the shares that you had. And if you go over to a close-end fund, which is it could be a type of mutual fund, it's going to have a lot bigger impacts or, or different uh, ramifications on when you need to redeem those shares and turn them into cash. Yeah, that's a really, really good point to, I think, to take home. If you own a mutual fund, that's a big way that it's different than owning a bunch of stocks. Yeah. Do you want to go to step or uh, number two here that we have yeah. on the number two? There are different kinds of mutual funds, Caleb, and I want to specifically talk about active and passive mutual funds. Will you please explain to people what we mean when we call a fund active versus when we call it passive? Sure. You said there are many types of mutual funds, just like there are many types of Manhattans. <laughs> That's why it fits so perfectly. <laughs> right. Right. So active versus passive. Um, you may not know a lot about mutual funds, but you've probably heard arguments about what wins over time, active management or passive management. They might not have. Well, if you have, you probably are paying attention. But the, the idea of active versus passive is quite simply this. We, we talked about uh, fund managers who are actively managing the portfolio. You're paying them for professional management. What they are doing on a day-to-day basis is they are buying stocks and selling stocks and buying bonds and selling bonds. And they are, a lot of times, I, I think what people think that we do <laughs> on a daily basis behind the scenes buying, selling, moving stuff around all the time. That's what they're doing. That would be active management, you know, to the point where maybe that fund has a, uh, their objective is to buy value stocks or something like that. They're, they're out there actively looking for companies that they think are undervalued, that pay good dividends, that have been punished by, you know, market events and things like that. That is a very specific active approach to management. 
a passive approach to management would be, you know, the school of thought that, you know, why would you pay somebody to go out there every day and buy and sell and pick this and that when you could just buy the S&P 500 and go up over time? So a passive investment strategy could be something like buying an index fund that really mirrors closely what the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones or what the NASDAQ or Russell 2000 is holding, basically just, just keeping what the major indexes are holding, or it, it could be a more specialized index or something like that. But the idea is active management doesn't win over time. Why would you pay extra for all that work when you could just set it and forget it? I hate to say it that way, set it and forget it. But I think that's how it's, it's proposed most of the time. So in a nutshell, an act, active versus passive is really paying for somebody that's trying to buy low and sell high versus paying less for something that's fixed. It's not going to be changing the positions a lot in the fund very much. So for all of you out there, if you've heard of index funds, those are passive funds. They are usually less expensive to own because you're not paying as much overhead to a fund manager and their whole staff of chartered financial analysts. Um, and then active active funds are things that are they're actively trading. They might be trying to be more tax efficient by doing capital gains loss harvesting, or they might be just trying to beat an index by timing or by using more technical or analytical data to make their decisions on what they buy. Yeah, I mean, and and really, we we see active uh, strategies that are more of a technical uh, strategy. They're following the charts and they're, they're buying based on momentum in the markets. And we see fundamental types of management strategies too, where we're looking for deeply discounted companies and things of that nature. Vanguard, I feel, uh, is one of those companies that really made passive management super, super popular. And the idea was, well, why would you pay a manager, let's just say 1% a year to not outperform the indexes, which is, you know, maybe historically what, you know, most fund managers would do is, is underperform. Why would you pay more for underperformance when you can just buy the index? Yeah, I think the data is pretty clear if you look at it. And lots of people have been shouting about that on the internet for a few years now is that most active managers do not beat the index and they're more expensive. So you should just do passive investing strategies. The jury is still out on that. We've had a a bit of an anomaly through the last decade, at least, uh, as far as it's compared to the rest of stock market history. But that has proven true. That passive investing has won for the last 10 years or so. And it might not always. And I think both sides can cherry pick, honestly. If you look at really the last 10 or 15 years, when the markets have just shot straight up, you think about 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. when the markets were cut in half or more in some cases, you know, and everything went up. Yeah, you can see why passive and paying less fees, when everything goes up, if you're paying less in fees, well, it makes sense that you would have more money in a passive strategy. Right. But the argument on the other side would be, well, when things get choppy and, you know, we're all waiting for things to get tighter, <laughs> right? When when we're going to have, I guess, our, our returns are squashed a little bit more. You could see the idea that active stock picking and picking the right companies in a tough environment would make more sense. And historically speaking, there are times when active does outperform. But they're both valid strategies. Right. So hopefully people know that they are different. And when you hear active mutual fund or passive fund, you kind of have a better idea of what those are. So those are types of mutual funds, really, when we talk about strategy and rebalancing and things like that. But when we get into the next point here, types of mutual funds, 
Let's get into a little bit more detail as far as asset classes, Jason. When we look at mutual funds and, and the types that are out there, what are we typically, what are we talking about? There's probably three or four. Yeah, it, it, it can really be confusing when you're classifying mutual funds as types. So an, an easy way to do it is by classifying them about what kind of stuff, what kind of underlying investments or securities they hold. And that's probably what we'll do now because we just said there's there's active and passive. Well, there's active and passive versions of these other funds that we're trying trying to, sure. to explain to folks right now. But I want to go with the most popular and probably the most utilized, which is equity mutual funds. Uh, when you hear Dave Ramsey talk about stock mutual funds, this is what he's talking about. These are mutual funds that own equities. The goal of this is usually to get some capital appreciation, some growth. You want the value of it to go up so that you get some gains. But a stock mutual fund, an equity mutual fund, will own equity and companies inside the mutual fund. You'll give them their, your money and they'll own whatever basket of stocks that they have decided in their management agreement, their prospectus to, to hold, to accomplish whatever the goal is of that fund. And some good examples of types of stock mutual funds are growth stock mutual funds. They'll be invested in growth companies, companies that, that don't uh, pay out dividends usually. They just reinvest all their profits and proceeds into growth. Think Amazon, right? Netflix. Netflix. Apple. Those are really big ones. There's all Although sorts of Although Apple, Apple, they're kind of, they're kind of a blend, Just because they you know? sit on more cash than anyone has ever had in their whole lives still doesn't make them a growth company or a value company because they're not paying they're dividends. Value. They're not paying the dividend. But they're though. probably, a, they're probably approaching blend. <laughs> I, I put it this way. When you hear the word equity, think stocks. So uh, really, you know, when we get down to the, the nuts and bolts of things, the really basics on investing, uh, when you hear stock, you think, I own a part of a company. That's, what you, that's when you're buying a share of a company, you own a part of it. That's called equity in a company. So uh, I don't want to presume anything uh, with our audience. When you hear equity, think stock. When you hear stock, think equity. Right. Equity just means ownership. Like you have equity in your your home because you have a mortgage on it. If you don't have a mortgage, you have 100% equity. If you do have a mortgage, you have whatever percent of the house you have paid off. I think that's a really good way to look at it. But there's lots of different types of stock mutual funds. There could be a sector. They could be in technology. It could be in consumer, uh, defensive, cyclical. There's all sorts of stock sectors it could be in. It could be in a value companies. It could be in small value companies, big value companies. It could be in international stocks. Uh, there's a lot of different types of equity mutual funds to look at. So the next one would be bonds. Bond funds are pretty popular, aren't they, Jason? I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> they're not popular right now. And you can guess why. If you think about bonds, there aren't really good returns on them. And their prices have been so volatile that they aren't even holding steady a lot of value. I have to push back here a little bit. You said that bond funds are not popular, but when you look at flows... I get it. Everyone thinks they can time when, when this is going to be a good time to move back into to fixed income and bond funds. And there have been some bond funds that people really like, like short-term bonds, high-yield bonds. Anyway, for our listener out there, that's probably too much. A bond fund is really a mutual fund that people are giving their money to that owns a bunch of debt from corporations or governments. Absolutely. It could be mortgage-related, mortgage-backed securities. It could be corporate bonds. It could be municipal bonds. So we just talked about equity. When you hear equity, think stocks. When you hear bonds, think loan. Think yeah. of you know, yourself giving a company a loan, and in return, you're getting a payment 
think of an interest payment or a coupon payment for lending your money out. So yeah, just like equity funds, there are probably as many bond funds out there. And they are very popular as far as when we look at where mutual fund flows are going. Flows, everyone, are where the money is moving to from other places. We, we always say flows. follow the money. <laughs> yeah. So what are the investors as a whole doing? That'll be fund flows. What funds is money flowing from and to? What fun funds are? What, what, yeah. So here, what this is the are. funny thing. When we're not market commentary people, we're not trying to time the market or anything. But when you hear people say, well, the market's up big. You know, uh, obviously everybody thinks that, that, that things are, are going really well and maybe we want to be contrarian. So we'll put money in bonds right now. If you look at flows and mutual funds, more people are putting money in bonds still for the most part, which would actually show the opposite. But that, that's an aside. That's a different uh, podcast episode, I'm sure. But yeah, we look at mutual fund flows a lot to uh, kind of gauge investor sentiment. And you would think right now with stock markets setting all-time highs that the sentiment is that everything's good and the markets just keep going up, 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 and maybe we should be more conservative. Well, the fund flows are showing that people, uh, investors, are actually a little bit more bearish on things. I'm sorry, that, that's a sidetrack. Nerd! What, what, what's the next one, Jason? Well, Caleb, we talked about equity funds or stock funds. We talked about bond funds or fixed income funds. What, what if you combined both of those? What would you call that? Uh, I'd say it'd be striking a balance. Yeah. Uh, a striking fund. Uh, let's go with balanced fund. Yeah, because that's what the rest <laughs> of the world has decided to use. Yeah, balanced funds we're talking about, which is really, now that we've talked about those other two, is pretty simple. It's really a mix between stock and bond funds. Yeah, a lot of you out there listening, probably, if you have a 401k and you've been auto-enrolled into uh, investment options and maybe you've got one of those target date funds, you got a balanced fund. Really, you've got a mixture of stocks and bonds and money market, which is supposed to move and flex as you get older and closer to retirement. That's a type of a balanced fund. Basically, it's holding a lot of different asset types. I just said money market, which is the other fund that we would be talking about here, right, Jason? Money yeah, that's what funds. we'll talk about next. So that, that last one is a mix of the two types of funds. Money market fund is not invested. It's in money markets. It's or Cash. super, super short Yes, government bonds or ADRs. I don't even want to get into. No, it's basically <laughs> cash. Uh, and that's what we should probably refer to it as. A money market fund is going to be a mutual fund that gives you uh, roughly the same return, maybe a little better than what your savings accounts are giving you at the bank. And those are not very popular at all right now, are they? Depository receipts. Sorry, had to get that in there. Uh, no, American they're not. Depository super. <laughs> receipts. <laughs> they're not super popular right now. Why would they be? Why would you pay somebody a fee to manage essentially cash, which is paying nothing? Yeah, it's true. So those aren't Although, very you, again, we say not super popular, but how often do we, we come across people who have 401ks and money is sitting in a stable value account? If you have a stable value account, this is what we're talking about, folks. It sounds really, really safe. And, yeah. and it is. It's not going to go backwards because it's invested in really, really short-term investments, like weeks of short-term investments. So the premium above cash in your pocket is not very high. Yeah, so we're not big fans of those at this moment uh, in history, uh, but that's what a money market fund is. If you ever hear about it and people are always like, I've got this emergency fund, should I invest it in a money market? And I'm always like, you know what? Just do your savings account. It's <laughs> The difference is barely anything. You, It's fractions of a cent probably. So we're talking about not making much money. Jason, show me the money. How do mutual funds make money? 
There are a lot of different ways that mutual funds can make money, but really three primary ways. How will you investing in a mutual fund make money for you? Yeah. Because if a mutual fund makes money, you make money. Well, no, all right. We'll get into fees. We'll get to that next. We'll get into fees. All right. So dividends and interest, right? Tell me about it. So we've got stocks in our mutual fund. Let's say we're talking about value stocks. Jason talked about uh, how Apple is not a value stock. It's a growth Um, stock. It's a growth stock. There are some companies out there. Let's think um, Coca-Cola, IBM. McDonald's. McDonald's, uh, Walmart. um, Some of these big blue chip companies that have been around for a long time. Yeah, Procter & Gamble. There's another one I was thinking of. Dow uh, Chemical. Sure, why not? Johnson & Johnson, right? Oh, that was a good one. like that. They are paying a dividend, okay? They're going to be higher than what you would typically see with a growth stock if they're paying a dividend. Maybe not as much as a bond necessarily, but... Essentially, they're, they're paying you a dividend. They're sharing profits with you yeah. as a company. They're saying, thank you for owning part of this company. Here's some money back. Here's your reward. We made money this quarter. Here's your dividend, right? There are other ways, though. So let's, let's switch gears to like an Apple that's growth-oriented or an Amazon or a Tesla, mm-hmm. those, those sexy stocks, right? How do those make money in a mutual fund? How does a mutual fund make money by holding those stocks? Well, the stock is worth X right now and does real good. And then it's worth X plus 10 later. I really like that. That does real good (laughs) is an excellent way of of describing how this works. You have a company who is not real concerned about sharing profits right now because what their concern is, is reinvesting those profits into growth strategies to grow the company to take over a sector or an industry. And you're, you're basically what you're doing there is you're betting on the long-term projections of them making a lot of money and doing real good, like Jason real good. said. And that, and that, so that's capital gains. So when a mutual fund is getting dividends and interest paid back from its holdings, maybe it's realizing a capital gain, which means that let's say it owned a stock that did real good, then they sell it. Uh, there's a difference between what they paid for it and what they sold it for. That's a capital gain. And they're going to have to handle that, but they're going to return that to shareholders. Yeah. And real simply put, Jason, uh, let's say that you bought an investment property for $100,000. And a year later, you sold that same property for $120,000. You have a capital gain of Mm $20,000. Essentially the same thing there. So we've got dividends and interest. We've got capital gains. The next one is NAV appreciation. We haven't talked about NAV yet. Um, Real quick, let's talk about NAV, what that stands for. Let's just not say what it stands for and just keep saying NAV. 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 Net asset value. Oh, you ruined it. <laughs> yeah, it's net asset value. So while the other the other ways that the mutual fund is gaining is it and by the way, if your mutual fund is earning dividends and interest from the stocks or bonds that it holds or it's realizing capital gains, it will either depending on how what you choose, return those to you as the shareholder, a distribution, or you can choose to reinvest those distributions mm-hmm. and it, you'll get more shares of the mutual fund. And if you do reinvest those sh- and get more shares of the mutual fund, or even if you don't, and the mutual fund itself appreciates in value, what will increase is the net asset value of a mutual fund. A net asset value is not what happens when you have stocks, Caleb. So let's talk about net asset value with mutual funds. Oh, okay. So we talked about a, a mutual fund as a an investment company, a collection or a basket of stocks. Let's just use an equity fund, for example, a basket of stocks. So you've got a lot of different stocks that make up X percentage of the portfolio. You know, each one is, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% here and there. The value of those stocks at the end of the day is recalculated every day 
So by the way, when you check on, you know, Yahoo Finance or CNBC, mm-hmm. whatever, you're, you punch in your ticker symbol for your mutual fund and you go, man, I see IBM's moving all over the place or Apple's moving all, all over the place. Why is my mutual fund doing nothing? Well, because that's a collection of individual stocks that's repriced at the end of every day. So mm-hmm. the next day when, when you check, that's a reflection of what the value of your mutual fund was at the close of business the previous day. Right, Jason? That sounded right to me. And that, that is something that's been really confusing for folks that hold mutual funds because like, let's say we have one of those crazy Dow down a thousand points days and people are like, wow, I see the market was down four or 5%, but I seem to be okay for today. I'm like, well, your net asset value hasn't calculated for the day yet. So just be patient. Check back at 9.30 tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so mutual funds are priced differently than stocks because they have to wait on all the stock prices to finish trading for the day and then reevaluate what the basket of stocks is worth. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So NAV appreciation really is all those things that factor into a stock price and their value being thrown into that basket and calculated uh, at the end of the day. Uh, But that's another way that you can make money. If you buy a mutual fund and the NAV, the net asset value of that fund is $10 a share when you buy in and it's $12 a share when you decide to get out, that's a way that you can make money. So dividends and capital gains and all those things kind of play into the, the mix there. What are some things that can drag down your your gains or returns in a mutual fund? I was going to say that all sounds great, but what about fees? Fees. What about fees? So there's no such thing as a free lunch. We said that if you have, especially if you have an active, uh, actively managed mutual fund, you're going to be paying a portfolio manager. Yeah, I don't think many do that out of the kindness of their own heart. No, they do it because you can you can be heavily rewarded with. Uh, your compensation through the fees. So there's several different ways that fees are charged inside mutual funds, Caleb. The number one way is with what's through what's called the expense ratio. So this is baked into the fund. You you can find it if you dig through the prospectus or if you have a nice software that just pops it up there, something like Morningstar Research or I think Yahoo Finance, you can find it. But I'm going to reference to this one a couple times before this episode's over, like FINRA Fund Analyzer. Oh, the fund analyzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they really are uh, excited about showing you how much <laughs> things cost. So the fee, it can be a big reason why your fund's performance is lagging an in index sure. per se, or or it's, it's the number one uh, drag on the performance of a fund. And the expense ratio can be found. It could be, you know, 1%. It could be a half a percent. It could be a quarter of a percent. It could be a fifth of a percent if it's a passively I, I've managed I've seen one. as high as two and a half. That's too two high. And three That's quarters. ridiculous. But they're, they're out there. And here's the thing that you got to be careful of. Like you said, you can find it if you're really looking for it, but it's not going to be advertised on your statement. Right. Uh, Nobody's really, really excited to tell you how much they're charging you, it seems like. So going back to our lies that financial advisors tell, we could have thrown this one in there about fees. When someone says there are no fees, they may have sold you a share, uh, share class of a mutual fund that doesn't have an upfront fee necessarily, but they sure as heck are charging you along the way. And folks, if they didn't charge you upfront, they're probably charging you more on an annual basis. Yep. There's expense ratios on funds. There's also the 12B1 fee that can be charged also. Ah, the 12B1. Also. <laughs> Go on, Caleb. <laughs> so this is uh, how they pay your broker and they pay the advertising and, and all those things out of the 12B1. Marketing materials. All the yeah. marketing materials and that gets smushed into the expense ratio. Um, this is a great transition, Jason, I think, into uh, loads and different share classifications. I think so. I think we need to, we've talked about this before when we, well, in several episodes, I think, but some financial advisors get paid by commission and a sales load is that commission. There's different ways that it's built in. Sometimes it's right up front where you could be like, I put $100,000 in, but how come only 
$95,000 is showing up. Well, that's because five grand went straight to the advisor. Yeah. And that would be an upfront sales though. There's also a there's the back end sales charge that can happen. There can or be a contingent. contingent deferred sales charge. Yes. So there's there's lots of different types. Usually usually those show up in the share class of the fund that you buy. You know, for the the purposes of this episode, I want to focus on three really share class types and and, and really two. The yeah. most popular that we see out there are A shares, B shares, and you guessed it, C shares. Now, so creative. Yeah. B shares have all but been outlawed at this point. Yeah, and, they are uh, they are practically not allowed to be. They used. pretty much only benefit the advisor and that usually <laughs> they carry some upfront charge as well as a higher back end charge and ongoing. So they're pretty much we don't see many B shares anymore. Uh, that was a pretty obvious one who benefited from C sh- or from B shares. But A shares, you mentioned we're, we're we're talking about how you pay for a mutual fund. So if you put $100,000 into a mutual fund, you get your first statement, the market hasn't moved, and you see $95,000, there may have been a 5% upfront sales charge. Now, think of it like this. You may be prepaying for management expenses for the long term. So you pay more upfront, mm-hmm. but you're paying less on an annual basis for the management of those funds, right? So if you think about it, if you have a really long-term time horizon and you never change anything again... It might be beneficial to pay a little bit more upfront on a hundred thousand dollars than to pay more on an annual basis on five hundred thousand when it grows to that point, right? There's some catches and caveats with this too. Why why would you not just put money in an A share and leave it there, Jason? Because you might want to make a change at some point. Yeah. Does life change? Yeah, all the time. And you know what? Maybe your fund manager retires. Sure. Maybe your strategy needs to change. Maybe international stinks all of a sudden <laughs> or has for a long time. Uh, maybe interest rates drop. The economy could change. Your personal situation could change. There's lots of reasons to be wary of locking yourself in to yeah. the same exact investment company for the long term. And you, you say locking yourself in while you're not technically locking yourself in like maybe you would with an annuity or something like that. What you're doing is you're paying all that up front. So the chances of bailing on that, you've prepaid for a whole lot of years of management. Yeah. If you leave, it, it stings quite a bit. As an alternative, we talked about the C share or the B share being all, all but gone at this point. Yeah. We've seen C shares over the last 10 years, 15, maybe longer than that. Really, really popular. Why are C shares popular? Because they, they operate on a smaller sales charge. It just happens every single year forever. Yeah. So when you say smaller, zero up front. Yeah. Zero up front. And this is how an advisor sometimes will tell you, I'm not charging you anything for these funds, right? Yeah. And then they get paid a 1% a year after that. Yeah. You put $100,000 in and your statement shows $100,000. It all goes to work right away. Well, here's the problem with that. Instead of paying up front sales charge for an A share, and, and maybe you have a half a percent expense ratio for the next umpteen years. You pay nothing up front, but maybe you've got a one and a half or a 2% expense ratio for the next umpteen years. Well, those expenses catch up pretty dang quick, mm-hmm. right? The idea there is, and think about it this way, the advisor is getting, when, when, when we talk about expense ratios, look at the expense ratio. That tells you how your, your advisor is being compensated too. So, yeah. um, you know, you might not want to pay anything up front. You're going to pay a heck of a lot more in the long term when you're looking at C-shares. Jason, there are, are such thing as no-load funds as well. Explain a little bit more about no-loads. Well, really quickly, we just talked about loaded funds with A-shares and B-shares and C-share funds. 
A no-load fund is exactly what it sounds like. There is no load on that fund. There's no commission being paid. These are extremely popular nowadays. If you get your own brokerage account online, you're probably going to have access to a bunch of no-load funds for free. Uh, and in a lot of uh, practices like ours that are registered investment advisors that do investment management folks use no-load funds uh, because there's no commissions on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's an expense ratio still associated with these funds, and that's what you need to check out. Uh, more complicated funds, more expensive funds should hopefully be making up for that in performance, but they definitely not always <laughs> are. So Most don't. No, most do not. But a no-load fund just means there's no commission on it, and the entire fee is being made up in the expense ratio. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, they're they're... They're very popular. Yeah, they are very popular. You can see what you're paying for. So a couple things to take out of this. When you hear equity, think stock, think ownership. When you hear bond, think debt. When you hear load, think fee, think what you're paying, right? I already mentioned the FINRA fund analyzer. If you go out to FINRA dot, is it gov? I don't know. I think it's org. FINRA is not directly from the government. Okay. FINRA dot org. They have a, a pretty cool tool out there called the FINRA Fund Analyzer. You can type in your fund's ticker symbol. You can find their A share, their B share, their C share, their no load. Most funds that are out there operate in one of these forms or maybe all of these forms. You might have an A share, B share, C share, or no load option for all of these funds. If you want to see really what fees you're paying explicitly, this fund analyzer will show it. You can compare fees between A shares, B shares, C shares, no loads, all that kind of stuff, and really see over the long haul, you can you can change your time horizon, all that kind of stuff, and see how much you're going to pay in fees over the course of your investment period uh, with that. I think that's a really good tool uh, to check out. If you own a mutual fund, if anybody's ever told you, yeah, I'm not charging anything, uh, you're not paying anything for this, double check that with the FINRA Fund Analyzer. Uh, you might be surprised. So Jason, we talked about a lot of really cool stuff today. Mutual funds. I love this topic. I think you love this topic, but why don't we distill it down for our listeners and do a couple of bullet points? Yeah, quickly. Why a mutual fund? Here's some pros. Diversification, professional management, liquidity on an open-end fund. Here's some cons. Transparency and holdings. Yeah, we we didn't talk about that actually a whole lot, but that's one thing you you know, you might get a quarterly report showing the stocks that you own. Small price to pay for the diversification and the professional management in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard to see. It's Their perspectives are huge and hard to read. <laughs> uh, other cons are the expenses and possible tax inefficiencies. Yeah, your tax situation might be different. Um, you know, Everybody's situation is different, and these fund managers are making decisions that could adversely affect you, and there's not really a whole heck of a lot you can do about that. So I would say more pros than cons for the most part, Jason. Let's talk a, a little bit about calls to action here. If you own mutual funds, what do we suggest? Review them regularly. Now, hopefully, you've got a good financial advisor that will talk to you about the funds and is doing most of that work for you. But if you're if you're buying your own funds, like in your 401k or other employer-sponsored plan, make sure you're checking on performance. Mm-hmm. Make sure it's suitable or it, it fits what your goals actually are. Uh, make sure that your expenses aren't outrageous, mm-hmm. and uh, check the tax implications of it. If it's in a if it's in a re- retirement account, yeah, you don't really have to worry about that. But if it's a non-qualified account, that's something to really check out. Yeah. And the second point, I would just say if you do own mutual funds or if you're being presented with mutual funds and you're looking at different share classes and things like that, do yourself a favor. If you've got a good advisor, they should lay this all out for you. But check out the FINRA fund analyzer as a way to compare costs over the long haul. 
when we talked about the different share classes and things like that, you got to look at investing is a long term thing for sure. But that doesn't mean that you want to always be in the same fund, you know, for your your whole time horizon. So that's a good way to compare the cost and really see what the, the true cost of your investment is over a long period of time. All right. Well, it's time for your feedback. Caleb, did anything come into the speakeasy this week? Yes, absolutely. We've got some feedback from Bernie here. He says, lie number seven. Yes, yes, yes. You saved the best and biggest, question mark, lie for last. Had a sibling call me just this week asking how my portfolio is set up, asking me with the events of last week if he should be further limiting his exposure to the market. The same sibling who a year or two ago said he was limiting his exposure to the market. As he approaches retirement, I didn't tell him at the time of my view that my retirement may last 20 to 30 years, and if I want my portfolio to grow much less, last, that I darn well better be in the market. I think he would have looked at me like I had grown a horn out of the top of my head <laughs> and a third eye. So instead, I gave him Nick Murray's book. I asked him if he was happy with his, his, his advisor and what his advisor had told him. He replied he was happy with his advisor and advised him to sit tight on his equity position. Then asked him what he was going to put his money into, whether it be bonds, CDs, or whatever. He came back emphatically that no, none of that, that bonds and CDs aren't paying anything. So I told him, listen to his advisor and to read Murray's book that I lent him a year and a half ago. I think he felt better after our conversation, and he said he would read the book. Now, I won't even get into my conversation with my oldest, most conservative sibling, (laughs) who a couple of years ago asked me what I had in CDs, I don't, in parentheses, and who purchased a whole life insurance policy at around age 70. Jason, sit back. (laughs) I wasn't about to ask him about his premiums. That would have been the height of absurdity for both of us, LOL. Have a great week, gentlemen. <laughs> Bernie, thank you so much for writing into the speakeasy. I love that. Everyone that's listening, the Nick Murray book that he's referencing, I assume, is Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, which Bernie also lent to me to read because I had never read it. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really, really good. I highly recommend it. It is third in my hierarchy of personal finance books recommended reading right after The Total Money Makeover and The Millionaire Next Door. So, uh, that's great, Bernie. I don't have much to say on that except the awesome. I'm glad you're listening. Sounds like you gave your brother pretty good advice. Yeah, and you're taking good advice too. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I think that kind of leads us to our next segment, Jason, which is... Questions Straight Up! This week's question comes from Jeremy. He says, love the podcast. I don't think I've reached the super fan status of Cassie, but I'm content to be an above average fan. Keep it up. I'm, that's great. Cool. But you can do it, Jeremy. Keep you working. You'll get there. <laughs> Here's my question. He says, what do you guys think of the Motley Fool? <laughs> Here's some background to my question. I invest in my Roth, HSA, and have another mutual fund for overflow cash. I have always thought that Motley Fool offers a reasonable way of being directly involved in the stock market without day trading. Essentially, set it and forget it for five plus years. I listen to your podcast on diversification, and I know that by owning mutual funds, I am invested in stocks, but it also seems that there's a potential for a greater payout, albeit higher risk, by investing in stocks directly. I don't want to day trade, and I don't want to buy stocks without some type of consultation. 
The $100 subscription seems like a low barrier to try Motley Fool out. Is this a poor financial decision? What do you think, Caleb? So I like the Motley Fool. There are a lot of publications or websites out there that I, I do like that I think give pretty solid advice. I find their articles to be really entertaining. I also like publications like Investor's Business Daily, and they have their own method mm-hmm. for buying and selling stocks. Here's what I don't want you to forget. What you are sacrificing, I, I agree with you, holding stocks directly could be more beneficial. You cut out fees and Absolutely. all that kind of stuff, but you're also cutting out, this is very important, and we talked about it on the episode today, professional money management. Jeremy, what do you do for a living? What are you great at? What do you do all day, every day? Are you going to be able to pick better than these people who do it on a professional level? So you're going to pay a fee by investing in a mutual fund. But again, we talked about it before when we look at active versus passive. I think what you got to look at is, do you want to pay a premium for for someone that's doing uh, active stock picking? Are you okay with the passive strategy? You're going to pay a little bit one way or the other, but do you think that you can do better than the pros? That's the question. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good point, Caleb. But I think I think even an even stronger reason to not do it. And I also love Motley Fool. I read their articles. I think it's good advice for the most part. I really like the idea of investing in in stocks and holding them individually. But part of the reason that I don't is because of the behavioral aspect. Mm-hmm. The Motley Fool is not going to be there for you to call. When you start to freak out a little bit, and let's that's face it, great point, those kinds Jason. of things will happen, and and that's actually a huge value of a financial advisor. I know it doesn't sound awesome to be paying somebody one percent or one and a half percent, two percent a year for that, but it is actually in in our day to day work, it's actually a way that we've provided the most value to our clients is oh, reassuring them that. The strategy that you have selected will work for the long term because it has worked for the long term before. And let's not make any rash decisions right now. The reason that we picked this is because we use good data to do it. And if and and we get people to stay in that would otherwise maybe jump in and out at all the wrong times. Yeah. And in the Motley Fool, while they do give good advice and they probably will write in their blog. They would tell you invested. buy and hold. Yes. They, they say to buy and hold. They're not actually there for you. When They're that, not going to stop you from selling on a bad When that day. stuff happens. So I like their advice. I think it's great. The reason that I wouldn't pay that subscription service is because, well, A, I think most of the information is probably available for free. For B, it's that you might not, you might not actually be able to to hold to their advice. And you might be able to, though, too. And But that's my, that's my warning. Yeah, I you know, that's a really, really great point. I know we're going over here a little bit, but I, th- I think this is a fantastic question. And, and here's where it works, practically speaking. A year and a half ago, this thing called COVID-19 came around and rocked everybody's world. The stock market was not immune to that. I think that we called most of our clients, tried to call everybody, in fact. Clients that called us who were worried, they had to call us if they wanted to sell. And we were there to have those 45-minute conversations that were pretty tough. Right. But looking back on that, after meeting with clients a couple of times after that event, they say, you know what? All the value that you provide, the fact that you were there to call and talk to and say, hey, let's hang in there for a week. We certainly don't want to sell when we're at the bottom. Right. So let's see how things go. You talk about paying somebody one and a half percent or whatever it is to manage your money. But when you look at the alternative of selling when you're down 20 percent versus hanging in there for a couple of weeks and being back to positive. And then you look at the returns that we've had in the market since then, that's well worth the fee that you're paying. Who's there to stop you from making crazy decisions otherwise? That's all I have. 
That's a great ending, Caleb. (laughs) Okay, folks. Well, thanks for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic that you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with all the latest actions by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.